up, go ahead and move around a little bit. Try and shake somebody's hand you've never seen before. Try and meet somebody new around you and tell them hello this morning. Once you've uh, had a chance to meet your friends and neighbors, you can grab a seat. We'll share a few announcements this morning and dive back into worship. We're glad you're here. Welcome to the Vine Community Church. My name is Treb Prater. I'm lead pastor here. If you are here for the very first time, we are honored to have you in worship with us. Uh, if you wouldn't mind taking just a moment and filling out the bottom of this white card, letting us know that you were here, we'd love to tell you more about our church and things that we have going on and just how to stay connected with us and that kind of stuff. Um, you don't have to, but we'd love to hear from you. On the reverse side of that is a prayer card. If you have something going on in your life you'd like us to be praying for, we'd love to do that. We take that opportunity very seriously and would love to pray for those uh, things that you request. Um, we have a lot of great things going on this week, kind of a normal week in terms of our activities in life. We've got men and women's Bible studies that meet up here at the building at 6 o'clock on Monday nights. We'd love for you to be a part of those. They're open to whoever wants to come. We also have a Tuesday morning men's Bible study. Meets at 7 o'clock at Chartel Cafe, right over here on 50th and Chartel. Open to whoever wants to come as well. Uh, throughout the week, we have life groups. You can learn about those on our website. Uh, we also have a group on Thursday that meets up here. It's a recovery group. They meet at 5.30. If you have things going on in your life and that nature that you'd love to come be a part of a group that is Christ-centered and focused on recovery things, uh, we'd love to have you be a part of that as well. As we make announcements for the past few weeks, uh, we're going to be starting in the middle of May a Dave Ramsey Financial Peace University class up here led by Chase and Sarah Buck. All that information will be on the city. Uh, the city is our online community. It's how we stay connected during the week and share announcements. If you're not on the city with us, we encourage you to do that outside by our little check-in desk. There are two little kiosks. Just put your email address in there, and we'll get you all signed up. And it's a, it's a great way to stay connected and hear about all the things that are kind of going on uh, in our life. Uh, if you have elementary age kids, we love uh, having families in worship together. At the conclusion of our worship time, we have our Vine Kids time, and, and uh, Miss Jody will come get all our kids and take them to be part of really great stuff that we have going on. Uh, in all of our Vine Kids area. It's a special Sunday because we are uh, having baptisms today, and I waited till May, so it would be awesome and warm, and now it's 48 when I woke up today. So, um, hey, look, it's just the way it's going to be, and we're doing it outside, and it's going to be cold, and so that's just kind of what happens. So, directly following worship, it's really a fun time. We all just pile outside, and uh, we celebrate new life in Christ and all that God is doing uh, in the lives of people here, and it's a really fun Sunday for us to be able to celebrate all uh, that together. So uh, we're excited about that, and we're excited that we have the opportunity to celebrate baptism with some folks that have uh, either never been baptized or have given their life to Christ for the very first time. So we are, are eager and excited about that. We are in the middle of our study of the book of Acts, and today we're going to kind of work through a large piece of text looking at the idea of waiting on the Lord, right? We're going to find Paul in the middle of a situation where he has felt called by God and five days is going to quickly turn into two years. And how do we live in the middle of waiting? What is the anticipation of waiting when God calls us to something and yet we're stuck wondering where God is? So it's going to be a great time this morning as we open up the Word together and as we worship together and we celebrate communion and baptism. It's just a great 
Sunday. And so before we kind of dive into all that any further, let's just take a moment. Let's pray. Let's go before the Lord and invite him to invade our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you that you meet us in the middle of our lives, that every one of us, God, has got stuff and things and issues and struggles and hurts and fears and failures. And God, you invade our lives and you meet us in the middle of all that. And so this morning, God, we ask you to do the miraculous and the amazing. We ask you to just invade our lives. God, we ask you to let the things that are distractions fall by the wayside, that God, we might just stand in your presence. Take a moment right now where you are and just ask God to prepare your heart for worship. Whatever that means, whatever you need to whisper to the Lord, just ask God to prepare you to worship him this morning. Lord, we are honored and grateful that we even get to gather in your presence. And so, Lord, we pray that you would invade our hearts and our lives today with the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, that we might stand and worship the living God. God, we pray that you would fill this room with your presence, God, and that you would uh, write our hearts, Lord, that you would set us up and prepare us for worship, and that, God, you would reveal yourself to us. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. Let's stand together this morning and continue in worship.
just a moment, take this passage in. Let's really think about what we are singing, that it comes from God's word. Let it soak in your heart. Let it fill up your mind.
elementary age kids or below, we'd love for them to be a part of what we have going on, our Vine Kids time. I see Miss Jody making her way down this direction. If you are here for the first time, again, I want to reiterate how honored we are to have you with us. Welcome to the Vine Community Church. It is our great privilege to have you in worship with us. Hopefully, um, you will find our little community to be welcoming and enjoyable, and if not, we'll try better. So uh, we're glad you're here. Uh, we are in the middle of this lifelong study of the book of Acts. We are actually into week 60. So for 60 weeks, we have been walking through every word and every verse of this book. Now, we've taken some breaks along the way. Uh, we've done some stuff over the summer and over Christmas and Easter and different things like that. But for the most part, we have gone word by word, verse by verse through this book. And we are coming to a close. In fact, today we are going to cover uh, actually an entire chapter because it's a whole trial that we're going to watch Paul uh, kind of go on. But if, if you've been with us or you've been on this journey with us, what you'll begin to realize or hopefully you've realized is that Acts is far more than a history-telling story. It's far, far more than the story of the birth of the church. It is actually a call on each of our lives as followers of Christ. It is the whisper of God calling us into a life that is empowered and sent by him into the world, that we are sent as followers of Christ into the world. It's not someone else's story, that as the church, as followers of Christ, it is our story, and it's, it's remarkable. We've seen some of the most incredible encounters and life-changing moments, and we've seen a heartache, and, and we've seen brokenness, and we've seen joy, and we've seen all these things unfold that are part of who we are called to be as followers of Christ, both together and as individuals, as we put our feet in the places that Jesus put his feet. It's a remarkable book. It's a, uh, it's a world changer. Well, we're into week 60, and we have gone through a ton of history, and we've seen a lot of things unfold over all these years. But we're at a place in time where the, the sort of the movements are drawing to a close. The, the missionary journeys are over. We are seeing Paul in sort of his last kind of call and quest to Rome. Jesus had told him that he was going to testify in Rome the same way he testified in Jerusalem, and the entire end of the book of Acts is on Paul's journey essentially to Rome. So here's where we are really quickly in history. The missionary journeys have come to a close. Paul has felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to return to Jerusalem. After all these journeys, 11 years and thousands of miles, he returns to Jerusalem and he knows he's returning to a hostile environment. People have told him, the Lord himself has told him. And when he arrives in Jerusalem, he's met with hatred and hostility and anger. And there's a lot of growing opposition to the gospel. There's rumors going around Paul. It's a threat to the way of life of the Jewish leaders. And they are up in arms that Paul would even return and they want him dead. And so Paul walks into Jerusalem, into this hostile environment, and they, the Jewish leaders, want him killed. They want him gone. And through a long series of events, they basically seize Paul and drag him into the temple and begin to beat him, trying to kill him. Well, the Romans that are occupying Jerusalem and pretty much the known world at the time, uh, they like to keep peace in their cities. And if anybody's going to do the killing, it's usually going to be the Romans. And so they step in under the a guy by the name of Lysias, the commander of the Roman army in Jerusalem, and he rescues Paul, saves his life. And he, and he basically takes Paul into the army barracks and trying to figure out why this crowd is so angry at him, he stretches Paul out to flog him, literally to kill him or to beat him up to the point of death and have Paul talk. And Paul basically says, hey, look, I'm a Roman citizen. And the guards and Lysias, the commander, kind of freak out because you can't, and they knew you couldn't punish a Roman citizen without trial. And so 
Lysias, not knowing what to do, takes him back before the ruling council in Jerusalem, which is called the Sanhedrin, made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, which are the kind of two major uh, ruling groups in Israel. There's some others, but they're the two major. And he stands up, Paul, in front of this crowd of 70 ruling elders, and he basically says, why are you so mad at this guy? And Paul says one sentence, and the high priest orders, and he gets punched right in the mouth. And so they punch Paul in the mouth, and ensues, the big argument ensues, and then Paul kind of drops a kind of a bomb in the middle of the room by saying, he goes, hey, look, the reason I'm on trial is not for anything I've done, but because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Talking about the resurrection of Jesus. A little bit of history is that the Sadducees and Pharisees thought very differently about the resurrection. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection. They believed that you could be raised from the dead and spend eternal life with God in heaven as long as you morally kept the law perfectly every single letter. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they didn't believe in an afterlife at all. They didn't believe there was a heaven or a hell or any of that. They believed when you drew your last breath, you were dead. And so by Paul saying, hey, look, I'm on trial not for my behavior but for my belief in the resurrection, the group started fighting. In fact, it became so violent that Lysias, the Roman commander, pulls Paul out to save his life again. And the Sanhedrin, these elders, these rulers, just are arguing and fighting. Paul goes back into the army barracks, and that night, as we looked at two weeks ago, Jesus himself comes, and he says he draws near to Paul, stands near to Paul, and says, look, take courage, all right, because you're going to testify about me in Rome the same way you testified about me in Jerusalem. And then last week, we uncovered this conspiracy, this, this murder plot. So if you were here last week when we had kind of night church because of the marathon, we talked about these series of events uh, in length. And what happened was Paul was in the army barracks that very next morning, the night after Jesus appeared to him and said, take courage, you're going to be going to Rome. We learned that Paul's nephew, that Paul actually has a family. He has a sister and he has a nephew. Most likely he's been disowned by them when he gave his life to Christ. But he's got this nephew that lives in Jerusalem, a young boy. And the young boy makes his way into the army barracks because he hears a plot, a murder plot, that has taken place. Forty Jewish men have gotten together and said, we're going to take an oath, an oath to the death. In fact, we won't eat or we won't drink until we kill Paul. And they went to the Sanhedrin leaders and they said, look, we want you to call a meeting, right? And we want you to invite Paul to come. And when he's coming, we're going to ambush and kill him. That's, what, that's the plan. And we vow to you and to each other to never eat or drink until we kill Paul. Well, somehow, Paul's nephew, God uses this incredible sort of, we never knew Paul had a family until now and never talks about him in the scripture, but God uses his nephew. And the nephew sneaks into the army barracks and tells Paul, hey, look, there's a plot to kill you. And Paul says, go tell Lysias, the, the commander. So this little young boy goes to Lysias, and Lysias takes him by the hand, and he says, what do you have to tell me? And he goes, the Jews are planning to kill Paul. And he lays out the whole plan. When you take him out of here, they're gonna, when you're walking down the streets on the way to meet the Sanhedrin, they're going to jump out, and they're going to kill Paul. They're going to murder him. So Lysias, knowing full well that he can't have Paul, a Roman citizen's murder on his hand, does something so miraculous that it can only be like, evidence of the hand or providence of God. He says this. He looks at his, his guards and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to assemble 200 infantry, 200 spearmen, and 70 cavalry soldiers. And I want you to march Paul under the cover of darkness to Caesarea where Governor Felix is. Now, we know that there are only about 600 soldiers in all of Rome at the time, and 470 of them are mobilized that night Get Paul's given horses, and they make the 70-mile journey down from Jerusalem all the way uh, to Caesarea to meet Governor Felix. The entire Roman kind of empire at that moment comes to Paul's aid. And that scene, as I talked about last week, must have been incredible to see 470 of Rome's finest, I mean the most well-trained, 
soldiers, the, the most powerful army in the known world, um, coming to Paul's rescue, literally mobilized to guard him and protect him and take him down to Governor Felix. And what we ended with last week was Paul arrives and Felix looks at him, and Felix is the governor of the entire area, right? So Lysias was just in the commander of the army of Rome, but Felix was in the governor of the whole area. And he meets with Paul and learns where he's from, and he says, okay, I will, I will try your case. And so Paul is waiting, right, to go on trial in front of Felix for basically his life because the Jews have got him on a death sentence and Felix is going to try his case. And so God delivers Paul from Jerusalem by an army of 470 Roman soldiers, 70 miles, where Paul had just come from one week earlier, if you remember a few weeks ago if you were here, one week earlier as a free man, he's now walking arrested, uh, incarcerated as a prisoner back to the same city with almost the entire legion of soldiers of Jerusalem as his guard. It was an incredible scene. Well, today, uh, this morning, we're going to look at the trial, and we're going to look at it in its entirety. It's a pretty lengthy piece of text, but I'll move through it pretty quickly because I want you to see from start to finish just what's unfolding. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Acts chapter 24, and we're going to look at Paul's trial as he stands kind of uh, in defense of his own life in front of Governor Felix, uh, the sort of leader of the entire area, um, an overseer of the entire area of Judea and the whole place. So before we uh, do that, let's go ahead and, and pray, and then we'll open God's word together. So Lord, I know it's a lot of words to get to where we are, but history is really important, and understanding scripture in context is super important. God, uh, really realizing what's happening here makes this text come alive. And so if we understand what Paul's walking through and what he's gone through and the promises that you've made, Lord, the things that we're going to see today will make a little bit more sense to our heart. Uh, God, because Paul's going to find himself in a place of waiting, and waiting is, is, is honestly, it's, it's really hard. It's hard for us, and I'm certain it was hard for Paul. So Lord, as we open your word today, I pray that you would teach our hearts, that you would whisper truth to us. Take a moment in your own heart, in your own life, and just ask God to teach you something today. Whatever he needs to speak to your heart, just ask the Lord to teach you. Pray for someone beside you, even if you don't know them. Pray that God would move in their hearts and lives. Be in the habit of praying for other people. We do this every week. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified, that you would be exalted, that you would reveal yourself to us through your word. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We don't take that lightly. So God, teach our hearts. Reveal truth to us through your Holy Spirit, God. Um, speak directly to each of us today as you want to, Lord, and let us see you in all of your glory. And we ask this in the risen and resurrected name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So we're going to look at a pretty big piece of text. All of 24 is the entire trial of Paul, and it doesn't make sense if we don't get from the beginning to the end. So we're going to go, th I'm going to read it all, and then we're going to kind of break it into chunks and kind of work through it a little bit. So let's take a look. If you're going to start in Acts 24, this is what we learned. Five days later, so after Paul's arrived in Caesarea and he's been agreed to stand trial before Felix, five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul the, uh, before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. 
We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought us many reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews and all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. And by examining yourself, you will find and be able to learn the truth about these charges that we are bringing against him. Well, the Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were certainly true. When the governor motioned to him, uh, Paul began to speak, and he replied by saying, I know that a number of years, I know that for a number of years you have been judge over this entire nation. So I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone in the temple, stirring up a crowd or in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you that the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers and as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God that these men have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and before man. And after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts to the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean, and I found, they, found in me, um, they found me in the temple courts doing just this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there were some Jews from the province of Asia who, Asia who ought to be here before you bringing charges if they have anything against me. Or these that are here should state what crime they have found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing, as I shouted, as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you here today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. And he ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but gave him some freedom and allowed his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess, and he sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ. And Paul discoursed on righteousness and self-control and judgment to come. And Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. And at the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, and so he sent for him frequently and talked to him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And because Felix wanted to grant favor with the Jews, he left Paul in prison. That's a lot of words and a lot of text, but it's really important. And so what I usually do is I usually kind of, we recap everything and then I kind of move into it. But I want to keep it in its sections in order to help it make a little bit more sense for us this morning. Because this trial is, is really important. It's kind of a standard Roman trial. It wasn't complicated. It had three major parts. It had the accusation. It had the defense and it had the verdict. There were not a lot of going back and forth. The, uh, the people that were bringing the charges against Paul had to be present. Roman law uh, said that if you were accused of a crime, the people that were accusing you had to be there. And so what uh, Felix does is he sends for the high priest to come and basically press his charges. So five days go by and the high priest shows up uh, with a whole bunch of other uh, people in the, in the Sanhedrin that are part of the Sadducees, which is the largest part of 
um, the, the part of the Sanhedrin, the largest part of them, the Sadducees, and they were aristocrats, and they were really wealthy, and they brought with them this, this lawyer named Tertullus, and he's kind of a big deal. We actually know about him from other historical sources. He was a very powerful lawyer, and the, the Sadducees could afford it. I mean, they were sort of well-to-do, and they had a lot of power, and so it was no surprise that they could bring with them a really kind of high-powered attorney, a lawyer. So they bring with them this guy named Tertullus to present the case against Paul. And so they go before Felix, Governor Felix, and they say, okay, here's our case. Well, Felix calls in Paul, and he sits there, and he's got the people that are making the charges over here, and we have the accusation. We have the prosecution that is against Paul. And basically, they bring three charges against Paul, right? The first thing is they basically say that he is a political troublemaker. He's a menace. And Tertullus kind of gives this big introduction to how great Governor Felix is and how he's excellent and how they've enjoyed all this peace under him, which is really hypocritical. They haven't enjoyed a lot of peace under him at all. In fact, he was corrupt and violent, and he would actually be put on trial. We're going to see this later. He's going to be put on trial for the way he handled things. And And the Jews actually thought his actions were horrific. And so, but you know, I mean, it's court. And yeah, he's great and we love you. And they're trying to win his favor. And so Tertullus is a great lawyer and he knows exactly what to do. And so he sort of butters up, you know, Felix. And he's like, you're the best and we love you, you know, and, and he does all that. And then he says, and here's this one little thing that we found, this guy, and we're going to give you a few charges against him. And, you know, you're so great. Of course, you'll find in our favor when you examine these things yourself. And they bring three charges against Paul. They say that he is a political menace, a troublemaker, that he has not only caused riots in Jerusalem, but he has caused riots all over the world. So this is a big deal because the Romans, right, they didn't want political people causing riots. Part of the ability to rule the empire was that you had to squash these movements when they happened. So you didn't allow political uprisings. So if Paul is causing political uprisings, if he's causing riots and stirring up people in Jerusalem and all over the world, well, that was a pretty big deal. Because the Romans, that wasn't going to work for them. And so they kind of say, he's a political menace. The second charge was that he was the ringleader of a religious sect, right? He was a ringleader of this new religion called the Way that was a follower of of Jesus. And Felix was well-versed, we learn this later, he was well-versed in the ways uh, of the followers of Christ and what they called the Way at the time, which was sort of the name of the church movement throughout Judea and throughout the world. And Felix was well-versed, and they said... Paul is the ringleader of this sect. Now, the reason they use the word sect, basically the word they're using there means offshoot or branch of, but it's a heretical branch of. And they use this term basically because the Romans really believed in a peaceful empire. And when they conquered a people group, they would allow your people group to practice your religion, right? You could still practice your religion as long as you did two things. As long as that religion was approved, And as long as you didn't question the deity of the emperor. So as long as your religion didn't question that the emperor, that Caesar, was in fact God also. And as long as your movement was approved and peaceful, then they allowed you to worship. And the reason they did this was because it kept all the people happy. And if you're ruling a massive, massive empire, keeping people happy was important. Well, Judaism was an improved religion that could worship. But this sect, this heretical sect called the Way, was not. And what Tertullus was saying is that Paul has risen to power as a ringleader for a non-approved religion, which was against the law in Rome. Right? So Tertullus says the first one causing all kinds of political upheaval. The second one causing all kinds of religious. Both are against the law. And then thirdly, he says, he even desecrated the temple. 
Now you got to remember a few weeks ago when we talked about kind of what got the Jewish people all fired up in the first place. Remember some, some uh, Jews that were there from Asia that were in there for the Passover saw Paul walking down the street with this guy named Trophimus who was an Ephesian. And he was a Gentile Ephesian that had come to know Christ. And they believed that since Paul was walking with him down the street, then surely Paul allowed this Ephesian into the temple, which was against the law and actually punishable by death. It was kind of a big deal. It was the only thing that the Romans allowed the Jews uh, to carry out a death sentence for, was if you went inside the temple. And so the Jewish people, or the Jewish leaders, kind of jumped in the conclusion that Paul had brought Trophimus into the temple, which we've covered weeks ago, which he didn't. He was just walking down the street with them, but that would desecrate the temple. And so he said, so these are the three charges that we've got. We've got a political menace and a troublemaker. We've got a religious ringleader who is leading a non-approved religion, which is punishable by death. And he's even desecrating our temple, which you gave us the right to punish him by death. Essentially what Tertullus is saying is that Paul should be on trial for his life, right? That's the prosecution. He's on trial for his life. All of these things that we just told you are punishable by the death sentence, okay? So Tertullus, a very skilled attorney, makes his case. Felix, sitting there in his whatever kind of seat of judgment, motions to Paul, and we see Paul make his defense. So we've got this prosecution, these accusations, and then we have this defense. And Paul's defenses are always really powerful because it's really incredible to watch Paul defend himself because he never really defends himself outside of what is totally and completely true. And so what he does quickly is he dismisses the first two charges. Well, the first one and the third one. He dismisses them really quickly. He says, look, just do some research. You'll figure out that I've only been in Jerusalem. Well, I've only been here for 12 days. Five of them have been waiting trial. So I was only in Jerusalem for a week. I didn't even cause a riot. You could ask anybody there. It's easy to dismiss. Having caused riots all over the world, I've peacefully basically taught. And the people around me have caused riots. He's basically saying, look, that, that's a lot. As far as the desecration of the temple goes, that's not true either. Ask anybody else. I was walking around. In fact, the Jewish people seized me, right, and dragged me into the temple. Um, but I didn't take anybody in there. He goes, those two things are just flat-out lies. Dismisses them very quickly. And he says, however, there's this other little thing, right, this middle one, this ringleader of this sect, this religious movement. And Paul basically says, if this is sort of what I'm on trial for, then... We may have a problem because this is kind of what he says. He says, look, unless it was this one thing that as I shouted, as I stood in their presence, it's concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. So he's saying, look, this idea of being a religious leader, if I'm on trial for that, if that's what's really happening, it's not the fact that I'm causing an uprising. It's the fact that I believe in the God of, the, of our fathers, of the Jewish fathers, looking at the, the accusers. And I believe in all the prophets and the law have said. And I am believing in the resurrection of the dead. Right? So Paul says, if that's the accusation, this one thing that I shouted at the Sanhedrin, then yes, I am absolutely and totally guilty. And Paul does this remarkable thing because he doesn't come to his own defense, right? He just dismisses the lies, and then he addresses the truthfulness in their statement. Paul understands that he's going to stand before a much bigger and higher power than Felix, that he has to be accountable for his actions and for his conscience. And so Paul addresses them by saying, look, I have to deal with my conscience, right? I have to be willing to speak the truth. And he says, and if that's what I'm on trial for, then so be it. 
I believe in a resurrection from the dead. I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, and that changes everything. And Paul knows that by saying this, he's speaking directly into opposition because the Sadducees that were bringing these charges against him did not believe in a resurrection at all, much less the resurrection of a criminal that was crucified. Right? And Paul says, I believe in the resurrection. And if I am on trial for that one thing, then I'm guilty. Then I'm guilty. And I love this sort of thing that Paul does because he never comes to his own defense and be like, see on me or, or show me mercy or, or do whatever or, you know, those aren't really true. He just kind of says, this is what's true and this is what I did and I proclaimed these things. And if that is punishable by death, then I guess you're just going to have to kill me. And he's not arrogant about it and he's not um, kind of confrontational. He just is stating a fact, saying if I'm on trial, it's really only for one thing, Right? And Felix understood all this because he had gotten a letter from Lysias, you remember? He had gotten a letter from Lysias that came with Paul, and the letter said that Lysias had rescued Paul from the, um, from the Jewish people, and he kind of knew that Tertullus was bending the truth a little bit, and Paul was basically just being completely honest. You've got this prosecution, you've got this defense, and then you have this sort of unbelievably remarkable sort of verdict. As, as interesting and as disturbing as it is, Felix says, okay, Paul's done, you're done, I'm going to render my decision. However, I can't really do it yet because Lysias, the commander of the army, I got some questions for him. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send for Lysias, who's up in Jerusalem, right? And in five days when he comes down, I will hear his testimony and then I will come and I will render my decision. So that's where we leave everything, essentially, or at least where the Sadducees and Paul think everything is left. They're going to send for Lysias. Lysias is going to come down and testify before Felix, and then Felix is going to basically decide if Paul is going to be crucified, because that's how the Romans would have killed Paul, the same way they killed Jesus. They would crucify him as a deterrent for everybody else. This is what happens when you lead a political uprising or when you're a a leader of a non-approved religious sect. You die. Because the Romans wanted to put down any kind of rebellion. And so they would crucify him. And that's what is facing Paul. He's either going to be crucified or he's going to be set free. Right? Those are the two things. And so Lysias says, or Felix says, I'm going to send for Lysias. And when he gets here, I'll make a decision. Five days. Five days. So the Sadducees go on their way. And Paul goes back to jail. Right? But he gave him a little bit of freedom. It says he gave him some freedom and let his friends come and take care of him, which is, is uh, not uncommon uh, because Paul has not officially been charged and he was a Roman citizen. And so he let his friends come in and bring him food and clothing and kind of all those, those things. And in the middle of all that, in the middle of those five days of waiting for Lysias to come down, we learn that Felix and his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, she was Jewish, um, that they called for Paul because they wanted to hear more. Now, Drusilla's a really interesting woman, and I can spend a lot of time talking about her history, but she's actually Felix's third wife, and she was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. Now, those of you who've been with us for a real long time will know that way back in November, in Acts chapter 12, we told a story about how King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa I, died, and he was in front of this giant crowd of people, and he was given, he was dressed in all these amazing robes, and, and he was given this speech, and the people started saying, that right there is the voice of God. And they started attributing Herod's voice, King Agrippa's voice, to God. And they worshipped him as God. And chapter 12 of Acts says that God struck him down. He fell down, and his body was eaten by worms. You remember that story? Graphic and crazy. Well, Drusilla is his daughter. 
So they're all really well connected. And he, long story super short, Felix was not supposed to be married to her. He actually bribed his way into that marriage and stole her from somebody else. I mean, Felix was a crooked dude. And so he and his wife go before Paul, right, because they want to hear more. Actually, they bring Paul before him. And they're sitting there, and it says, this is what happened. It says that several days later, right, Felix and his wife sent for Paul, and they listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ. And as Paul discoursed about righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. So here they are, calling Paul in front of them in between this five-day kind of period. And Paul's talking about Jesus, faith in Christ. He's talking about righteousness and justice, which basically speaking directly into the sinful condition of Felix and his wife. And he's speaking about the judgment to come. Not Paul's judgment, but the coming judgment of God, right? And it says this, that Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You can go. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. So Felix comes face to face with this, which really the reality of of God's righteousness and his sinfulness. And it's really a terrifying thing. It's a terrifying thing when you recognize that holy, almighty, majestic, wonderful God and, and your own deep sort of broken sinfulness. And Felix was coming into contact with that, and it causes us to do one of two things. One, it causes us to fall on our knees and worship. God is amazing and beautiful and holy and perfect, and I am a sinful, broken disaster. Or two, it causes us to run, because we hate that feeling, we hate what that's like, and we just take off. And, and right now we find Felix just on the run. He's like, that's enough. I can't handle it. I cannot handle it right now, because Felix was convicted. He knew what his life was. And here's Paul talking about faith in Jesus and righteousness and justice and that he would stand before the Lord one day because Paul believed in a, in a resurrection for both the righteous and the wicked, meaning that we will all stand one day before God and be accountable for our actions. And that the only hope we have is not that we morally lived a perfect life, but that we had Jesus Christ as our mediator and that he died for our sins and has given us life and that is our only hope. We will all stand before God, righteous and the wicked. There will be a resurrection. Felix hears that truth, knowing full well where his life fell. And so he says, I can't take it anymore. Go away. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. He was also kind of hoping that Paul would bribe him because he needed a reason to let him go. Because he knew if he let him go, the Jewish people would freak out. And, but he also knew that he didn't really have a reason to hold him. And so he was kind of hoping that Paul would bribe him. So over a period of time, He just kept calling Paul back over and over again. And then listen to this. It ends with this. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. So five days turns into two years. Five days turns into two years. We don't know what happened, but I'm guessing that Felix decided that he didn't know what to do, so he was just going to leave Paul in prison and frequently call for him. An audience, listen to the gospel, listen to whatever, calling for him until something happened. Felix was recalled by Caesar back to Rome to stand trial, all right, for his own actions because the way he handled different judgments. And a guy by the name of Porcius Festus is going to take over. And Felix knows, and we know this from a lot of extra biblical sources, knows that he's getting ready to stand trial and that he's going to have witnesses called that were Jewish. And so in order to garner favor with those Jewish witnesses, he doesn't release Paul. He keeps Paul in jail. So the Jewish people will say, no, man, Felix, was, he was great. He was great. Worried about himself, and he goes to Rome. 
So here's Paul. It's been two years since Paul was arrested. Two years since that night that Jesus stood by his bed and told him to take courage that he was going to Rome. Two years since he was marched out of Jerusalem under the guard of 470 Roman soldiers. Two years before he made his defense, since he made his defense in front of Felix. Two years he had simply sat in jail wondering what was going to happen, essentially just waiting on God for two years. And then Paul's only hope, because he had established a relationship with Felix, probably weekly, spending time with him and talking to him and sharing with him, just got up and went to Rome himself. And Felix probably explained to him, look, you're staying in jail. I'm sorry. And he goes, and Festus, who we're going to learn about next week, is a whole other hot mess, comes in and takes over, right? started thinking about all this, and I just thought to myself, man, what an incredible, miraculous story, right? I mean, God, here's Paul who's delivered in front, from the hands of an angry mob, right? They're going to kill him in the gates of the temple, and the Roman guard steps in and saves him. And that very night, Jesus shows up and says, hey, look, it's going to be all right. Take courage. You're going to Rome. And Paul's heart swells, and he's encouraged, and he knows that God has a plan for him. God had saved his life and delivered him, and so Paul's like, Man, God is good. And then all of a sudden, the army rises up, 470 soldiers, marches him down to Felix and Caesarea, and Paul's going, God is on the move. God is on the move. God is moving. Five days, we'll have a decision, and Paul's heart swells because he knows that God is going to deliver him and take him to Rome. And five days turns into a week, which turns into a month, which turns into a year, which turns into two years, and Paul is still sitting in jail in Caesarea two years later. I don't know about you, but waiting on the Lord is deeply painful. It's hard. It's discouraging. Those times, those two years, I promise, are not filled with high fives and joy. Paul is in prison under Roman guard, wondering where God is that had called him to this hot mess. Where is that God? Right? God stood beside me and told me I was going to Rome, and it's been two years and I'm sitting here in jail still wondering if I'm going to end up being crucified or not. And then my only hope, Felix, punches his own ticket and rides out of town to Rome himself. And now here I am all over again. I started thinking about just our life as followers of Christ, and and as we look at Scripture, how much waiting is actually a part of the life of a follower of Jesus. If you really read Scripture, waiting is, it's really steep through its pages. God is never in a hurry to get anywhere or do anything. He's operating on his own timetable, his perfect and most amazing sort of providence. Jesus is never in a hurry to get anywhere. When do you ever see Jesus trying to hustle somewhere? He just pokes around the countryside doing incredible things. And he shows up at the right time always, never rushed, never in a hurry, never passing up a relationship, never passing up a moment to speak, to touch, to engage someone's life. God is never in a hurry, but our lives are constantly in a hurry. We are constantly busy. We are driven by whatever is next. Waiting is awful. We hate it in every part of our life, much less in our spiritual life. We hate waiting. My my 10-year-old, or I guess 11-year-old now, was sick last night, and I went to CVS to get some medicine for him, and it closes at 11, and I was there like at 1045, and there were three people in line in front of me, and there was no lady checking us out at the, at the CVS, right? 
And I was just sort of waiting there. And the guy at the very front of the line was getting incredibly angry. I mean, just furious. And so he marches over there, and he finds this lady who's vacuuming because they close at 11. And he, and he kind of yells at her a little bit and says, we're all waiting up front here. We've been here for like five minutes, right? And he drags her, not physically, but he drags her up there, and she gets up there, and she scans everybody. I'm last in line. After she gets to me, she has these giant tears in her eyes, huge. And she says, that guy was so mad at me. And I said, yeah, but I mean, you know, no big deal. She was like, I was just trying to get the floors vacuumed. I didn't know y'all were up here. I was like, look, it is no big deal. Yeah. We are in a hurry all the time. I don't know, maybe the guy had something crazy going on. But in the middle of that, he just hurt her, right? Five minutes, five minutes. We hate waiting. And the reason we hate waiting is because we think we have everything figured out. And so when God calls us to something, we want that something to be now. We want that something to unfold on our timetable, in our frame, and in our understanding. Because we can see, God, you called me to Rome, let's go to Rome. Right? Like, I'll start now, and we want that movement to begin now. We don't want the God that calls us to go to Rome to make us sit in prison for two years. And it's not going to be just two years. Paul's going to find himself shipwrecked and bit by snakes and broken and nearly starving. Years later, before he ever arrives in Rome. Waiting on God is painful, and it is hard. But it is incredibly beautiful, because here's why God never never calls us to wait alone. The greatest promise in all of Scripture is that when God calls us to wait, He waits with us forever and always, right? It's the very promise of God. It's the very word, Emmanuel, God with us, right? When, when Jesus takes the disciples after his, his resurrection at the end of Matthew, right before his ascension in the book of Acts chapter 1, he gives them this great commission. He says, look, I want you to go to all the nations. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want you to teach them everything I commanded you, and I am with you even to the very end of the age. Meaning it's going to get challenging. I am with you. Emmanuel, God with us. The greatest and most beautiful thing that we have is that God never calls us to wait alone. But waiting is hard because it's in the waiting that we let our fears and we let our anxieties, we let those things creep up in us and we begin to ask questions, has God forgotten me? Where are you? Why do I feel so alone? I guarantee you at some point in time over that two years, Paul, who is a very faithful man, allowed those thoughts to creep somewhere into his life. God, where are you? I mean, you called me to Rome. Did I do something wrong? Like, are you punishing me? I am still sitting in jail two years later with no hope. Well, those are the questions that would race through my mind. God, where are you? Like, what have I done? Why have you walked out on me? Did I do something wrong? Are you punishing me? It's in the middle of those questions, right? In the middle of those questions that are so painful, we oftentimes fail to see what God is doing, that God is developing character and perseverance, that God is working on the other end of what he's calling us to. God had all kinds of incredible things that were happening as Paul was sitting in jail preparing that Paul would testify in Rome. See, God has this incredible picture of everything that will unfold in history. And we've got a snapshot of what I can see with my eyes today. I don't know what's going to happen when we walk out of those doors. God knows what's going to happen 40 years from now. 
He knows every single hair on your head. He knows every breath that you will breathe. And yet we fight that God for control of our lives. It's in the middle of the waiting that we let anxiety and fear creep up. But it's in that waiting where God is developing our heartbeat and revealing to us his nature and his character. And it's in the waiting, I I venture to say, that we truly see the movement of God. When we have to trust and rely that he still is God. Paul's movement in this trial doesn't end real well. It doesn't end with a bunch of fancy takeaways about how great God is. This trial ends and Paul's basically rotting in jail. And we always want our little messages and our little sermons to have all these little great three points and then end with a feeling that I can walk out and say, hey man, it's all going to be okay. But you know what? Paul's sitting in jail and he does not know that it's all going to be okay. He knows he's either going to die there and go to heaven or God's going to have to do something miraculous. It doesn't always end on a high note. And today, it really ends with the question of do I trust that the God who called me will be the God that completes what he called? Do I really believe that God will do what he said he will do? That a God who promised to never leave me nor forsake me, do I really believe that his words are true? And if you're anything like me, you have wrestled with that time and time again. God, do I really believe you won't leave me? In my time of most vulnerable need, in my time of deepest doubt, do I really believe that you will not abandon me? The promises that we're celebrating today, baptism and communion, are are the incredible pictures that God has left us with of his promises. That he is a God who keeps his promises, that he never leaves us. And he gave us tools and he gave us things to demonstrate his great love and these great moments of struggle and fear and waiting. And the communion is a tool for the waiting. I mean, think about it. Jesus was, was going to the cross. He knew what was happening. He knew that his life was going to be taken. And he gave his disciples this table to say, in the waiting, until I return, do this. Communion is a promise for the waiting. It's a reminder of all that God did in his promise to return. And we take communion like it's some kind of habit in our worship experience. When it is the greatest promise in the middle of our waiting. And the Bible takes it so seriously. And like most things in our Christian life, we toss it to the side as habitual. But this table is the promise in the waiting. Because right now we're in the middle of waiting. Do we believe that God will come back? That he will wipe away every tear from our eye. There will be no more pain, no more hurt, no more tears. Communion is the promise of the waiting that I love you and I died for you and I shed my blood for you. And you are mine, and I've claimed you. And baptism is that same promise, that what I have done in your inward heart is an outward symbol of what I have already done in you, that this world is no longer your home, that your citizenship is not here, but it is in heaven. It's a promise in the waiting. And if you're not in the middle of waiting today, you probably will be. They come as movements in our life. And the question is, do we believe in the God who calls us into that waiting. We believe that he will fulfill the things that he's promised. He will fulfill mainly that he will never leave us. And it's the most beautiful promise in all of Scripture that God will never, ever call us to wait alone. He waits with us, nurturing our heart and our character because his promise is to never leave us nor forsake us. This morning as we celebrate this table, 
We're proclaiming the promises of God in the middle of waiting. And maybe it's just the waiting on, on him to come and kind of do away with brokenness and sin. Or maybe you're in the middle of a season of, of real waiting. Maybe you've been praying like crazy that God would do something and nothing has happened. Maybe you've been, been praying that God would move or that God would heal or that God would deliver and we're still just waiting on God. Well, this table is really the promise that we don't wait alone. That God has given us this incredible tool, gift, table to celebrate together. On the very night that Jesus would be betrayed, on the very night that his life would be taken, he would be betrayed by all of his friends, the night before he would die on a Roman tool of torture and death, he sat down with his disciples, these, the guys that he had come to spend his entire life with, and he gave them this beautiful thing for the waiting. And he basically said, after giving thanks, he said, this bread is my body, and it's broken for you. And after he'd taken the bread, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Then we take of this bread and this cup, we are proclaiming the death and the resurrection of our Lord until he comes again. This table is the picture of God's ultimate and perfect promise. And this morning, whatever you're waiting in, this is God's presence to remind you that you're not waiting alone. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this beautiful table, this truthfulness that is wrapped up in here. God, the victory that is wrapped up in here. God, the comfort that is wrapped up in this table. God, this is a table for our waiting. It's a promise. It's a picture of your faithfulness. So God, we pray that you would take these ordinary elements and you would nourish our soul with them. You would, you would speak to us. God, you would remind us. You would comfort us. God, you would whisper to us. And that God, as we celebrate this together, it would be an expression of our trust in you and our belief that you are who you said you are and that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And that God, you have a perfect and wonderful and glorious plan, even in the middle of the most difficult circumstances, even in the middle of our fears and anxieties. You are God. Thank you for your son and for giving us life. And thank you, God, that we get to celebrate this together. We ask this in Jesus' holy and perfect name. Amen. As our servers come down this morning, I'll remind you that we take communion by means of intinction, which is a really fancy way of saying you take a piece of the bread and you dip it in the cup and you eat it while stations up front and in the back. And for those of you with any kind of uh, gluten or wheat allergy, we also have um, gluten-free options. Just tell your server and they'll We'll make sure that you get that. But as Don and the team lead us in worship, let's stand together uh, as we're ready and take this meal um, together.
God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here and celebrate this truth. We thank you, Lord, that you are faithful and gracious and so good to us. We thank you, God, that this is ultimately the promise of your death and your resurrection, God, and we proclaim it, we celebrate it, we live in it because, God, it is for the waiting. It is the promise of what is to come. It is the promise, God, that you have given us, that we anchor to, and we're so grateful, Lord, that you have given us this to share together. Lord, we pray that as we wrestle with our own fears and failures and doubts and struggles and we wrestle with our worries and our anxieties, that we would, we would trust you, that we would believe that you are a God who you say you are, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, God, and that your, your voice, your truth, your word, your spoken and written word is enough for us. And that, God, we know that you have a plan that is big and that we trust you, God, even when that waiting goes from five days to a year to two years, God, we trust you and we do not wait alone. So, Lord, hear our cry as we close our time in worship. God, that may be the echo and challenge of our heart to believe in you, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So we invite you to stand and sing this last song celebrating that truthfulness, that God is who he says he is, that he never leaves us nor forsake us. And then as soon as we're done, make your way outside as quickly as you can so that we don't freeze to death our folks. Uh, they're going to get baptized. We're going to make our way out there. And then we're going to sort of close our time all out there together celebrating the ultimate promise of God, which is death to life. Right? Let's celebrate and worship together.
forth to the out, outdoors there and let's celebrate together. Um, do it quickly. Don't run and hurt anybody. But they are waiting to be baptized, so head that way.